0: Happy Holidays, everyone! MuggleCast will be back with a new episode Tuesday, January 10th. But today, we wanted to share with everyone a bonus MuggleCast installment we released on our Patreon earlier this year. In this installment, we discuss Alan Rickman's diary entries about working on the Harry Potter movies. He shared a lot that we never knew before, and it is fascinating to get a look inside this legendary actor's mind. This is a fun and really interesting bonus MuggleCast installment, so we thought it'd be a great one to share with everybody as we round out the year. If you want more bonus MuggleCast installments, pledge to our Patreon today at patreon.com mugglecast. Enjoy this installment and Happy New Year! This is Bonus MuggleCast, and we are discussing Alan Rickman's diaries. Of course, he played Snape in the Harry Potter movies. His diaries are being published October 18th in a new book titled Madly Deeply. So he reportedly intended to have his diaries eventually published. So it's not like they were stolen and somebody's leaking them. This is all on the up and up. His widow has also been working on the publication. So some of many excerpts from the diaries have been published through The Guardian and a couple other news outlets in the lead up to this October 18th release. And I've collected these Harry Potter diary entries, and we're just going to go in chronological order. From what I've read about his diary so far... When he started keeping diaries, his entries were pretty short. And as we read these, you'll find he kind of wrote in fragmented ways, kind of just short thoughts, getting Mm -hmm. things off his chest. And I think the diaries, he was writing diaries for a good, like, 20 years. Wow. And uh, as time went on, his diaries would get longer and longer. So I think if you do pick up this book, you'll find that the earlier stuff is kind of shorter. And then as time goes on, they get longer. Anybody here keep a diary, by the way?
1: I never have. I've often thought I should, but uh, mm. just it's just nice to remember like the intricacies of what you were thinking at any one particular moment. When we get through this with uh, Alan Rickman, he talks about specific days of filming or specific scenes, and I just find that afterward, whether you're Alan yourself or, or just a reader or somebody who's interested, uh, it's so interesting and is something is different than what you could try if you just tried to recall uh you know later without having this type of of first person sort of experience. So
2: yeah. I've kept a diary pretty much since I was a kid. I was a lot more consistent with it when I was a kid and I still have my old diaries from back then, which are very funny and cringy to revisit now as an adult. Um and I do some journaling now. I don't do it as much as I should. Um but I really like it as a tool for catharsis and I think that's going to be the lens through which we read or at least I read all of these entries today Um, because there is something cathartic and human about just kind of letting your real unfiltered thoughts through so that you can process them. Yeah. Uh, So often getting thoughts down with Pen and paper can do wonders for alleviating frustrations or giving you time to process things. It, it can even give you an opportunity to rethink the way that you are imagining things and perceiving things. Um, so I I think that there's a lot of humanity present here, and that's beautiful. Even if sometimes the internal thoughts that are shared. Hurt.
3: It's real. Um, it is it's real. real.
2: We, and yeah. we all have them.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, yeah.
2: We all have. I
3: also them. think it's important to remember because I know we're going to dig into a, a lot of things that may kind of rub people the wrong way that, you know, we don't know necessarily, like, even though he's expressing himself on paper, we don't know how he was particularly feeling that day, you know, what could have maybe right. caused him to make these entries. And, and, you know, it, I always think that. It, it's easy to sit here and pass judgment and say, "Whoa, this guy is not who we thought he was." But let's all like remember the yeah. appropriate context for for some of these things. He he was mm-hmm.
0: also fighting cancer through yeah. some of this, as as we'll get to. And we had
2: no idea; I, no one knew.
0: No, yeah. Um, I did keep a diary when I was younger, and I remember it had a little lock and
3: key.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: But I had a realization yesterday when I was That's
3: like, a Netflix show too. You should watch it. The lock
0: and key, yeah. Mike watches <laughs> like literally everything on Netflix. It's very impressive. Um uh but I had a realization last night. I was like, where is that diary now? I have no oh, freaking clue. Man. <laughs> Which kind of freaks me out. I just hope it's in a landfill somewhere, because I don't want
1: anybody but me key. to war board like, of your childhood. I don't yeah, yeah. But the key is still around your neck in a little like chain, right? Andrew, you've kept it all these years. <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah exactly
0: exactly um i and speaking of like laura you were talking about how cathartic it is to just sort of like get stuff out with pen and paper i uh sometimes it feels good to just compose a tweet and not (laughs) post it just save it as a draft or delete it it's just you're typing it out you know you're getting it off your chest and then it's like okay i wrote it down so i get that feeling too when i just
2: (laughs) yeah i mean writing is also a huge therapeutic tool I don't know mm-hmm. if any of y'all have ever used that in therapy sessions, but I've recently done that where I'm I'm trying to reframe a particular event in my life through therapy right now. And a huge part of that process was me writing down that time in my life exactly as I remember it and perceive it now so that... Me and my therapist could read through it together and talk about it.
1: It's hugely beneficial. And, and yeah. you know, in my case too, in, in instances when I've done that, or even saying things out loud to somebody, uh, which is basically the same muscle. Uh, I'm In some cases, I'm not aware of my thoughts until I say them out loud, um, you know, or same. see them written down. So it's, and then, I, but then I have to go back and go, yeah, that's correct. That's exactly how I feel. But like seeing it out is like, wow, that's the the art of generating it is a really wonderful Uh, creative process um, which cuts right down to the core of who you are
0: all right well let's look at these diary entries so this like i said we're going to go in chronological order so his um so this one is from prior to beginning filming sorcerer's stone talk to joanne Rowling again and she nervously lets me in on a few glimpses of snape's background talking to her is talking to someone who lives these stories not invents them She's a channel bubbling over with, well, when he was young, you see, this, that, and the other happened. She never said, I wanted so-and-so. So this was interesting because, you know, this is, of course, something that's celebrated when it comes to J.K.R.'s
1: writing. It's just so rich, and she has a deep understanding of of the world that she's creating. Oh, yeah, and and, and a great insight into the author in the middle of the height. Like of Harry Potter fandom, uh, so nineteen ninety nine, you know, two thousand, this is right before Goblet of Fire came out. Um, you know, she is living these stories the way that the way that Alan Rickman, uh, talks about the fact that she's in them and not kind of giving herself a place as the author to be like, well, I wanted to make this character do that. She's like, no, Snape is a guy who did this, and in his you know childhood, this that represents the headspace at that you have to be in as a writer to be able to create. Uh, these types of stories that we all now know and love. So I think, you know, especially the earlier books, which have that extra little panache of magic. Uh, for me, this is a wonderful, very unique insight into who she was, like what her personality was like during the biggest and most important, I would argue, part of her creating these books. And this, of course, is probably when she
0: told him that Snape loved Lily. Mm -hmm. And we had always known, especially after reading book seven, that this was a secret that we had always known that she had told him something big about Snape, but we never knew. And I think Emerson actually interviewed him on the red carpet about this. You know, what's the big secret? Because this was before the release of book seven. And of course, he didn't reveal it, but this must have been around that time where she was revealing that. And it was great that she did tell him this. And it's awesome that they did have a conversation so he could bring more to the character.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, didn't somebody, was this during the anniversary special? Somebody recently, I feel like, was talking about Snape, was talking about Alan Rickman on set. And the director was trying to get him to do something. And Alan Rickman actually pushed back and was like, no, Snape would never do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's because he knew this one little nugget about... Like Lily or whatever it was, I, I think there was maybe one instance total where Alan kind of, you know, held it over the director's head that he knew something. And and so he didn't take a note a particular way because of what he was let in on. Um, anyway, I seem to recall hearing that as a, an anecdote.
2: Yeah. And how do you argue with Alan Rickman? I mean,
1: he's... (laughs) Well, period, first of all. But then also an Alan Rickman armed with foreknowledge of how things are going that maybe even the directors aren't privy to. I can understand that to be a difficult kind of situation. Let's look at the next entry.
0: This was during the filming of Sorcerer's Stone. Back to Harry Potter, the Great Hall with Maggie Smith, Zoe Wanamaker, Ian Hart, Richard Harris, all in their ways, sweet, funny souls. But this is tick off the shots filming. No big speech about the scene and what we're all thinking. Maybe there isn't time. Maybe too many people involved in the decisions. A hat has been made for Snape. A hat? For Snape? Fortunately, Chris Columbus is also a sweet, funny soul, and you kind of guess what he's thinking, what he wants. Certainly, if you step outside that, he's in sharpish. So it gets done and it all looks just fine. So a recurring theme we'll see in these entries is that the production was very much a studio studio film. And by that, I mean the studio wanting, having a lot of control and there being no time for anything but business. Get the shots done, move on. No time for art and creativity. (laughs) Just do what the director says because we're on a strict timeline.
3: But I think that- it changes a little bit, and and he alludes to this in Prisoner of Azkaban. Like, bringing in Alfonso Coron, there was a different approach to it. Uh, but I do agree. You do see a lot of him referencing how it's like, it's all business. Like, get it done, move on boom, to the boom, next boom, thing. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah.
0: He doesn't even get a chance to talk with the director, but we'll get to that.
2: Yeah. Something I can see here, too, is this evolving over time as the kids get older. We do have to remember, during these first couple of movies, we're talking about, like, 10 to 12 year olds who have very limited acting experience with the exception of Dan. Right. I would imagine that corralling all of those kids every day um, and making sure that their school schedules were yes. accommodated for Cause remember there are laws about how long kids can work on set every day. Yes. So it probably did have to be a really tight ship. That's imagine. a critical
0: point. Yeah, they yeah. had to get it done because they could only work for a certain number of hours
1: per day because of their age. Yeah, really good point. Come on, Alan. Yeah, that's sad. There, <laughs> there doesn't seem to have been any time made for adults about their craft, though, yes. I think is sort of yeah. what, what where he's going. And you know what? This is such valuable insight because somebody like Alan is the only person that can offer this kind of, I, I think, like unique lens into what might have been failing about the films to professional- actors, we often say how this British acting royalty were all cast in Harry Potter with very few exceptions, but getting the perspective of this is by the shots filmmaking. And it's not, I mean, the implication here is it's not art. Um, And so that's such an interesting thing that Mm -hmm. somebody like Tom Felton, whose autobiography is coming, could never speak to because he's too young. Like when you're a kid, it's a way different experience. So For the actors, for one of the adults to be disappointed, I think we can infer, in sort of the huge studio film nature of things, this question, too many people involved in the decisions, um, is a really interesting take that I value because he's the only one who could give it. Yeah, let's look at the next entry now. So this is after attending the
0: Philosopher's Stone film premiere. He wrote, brace yourselves, the film should only be seen on a big screen. It acquires a scale and depth that matches the hideous score by John Williams. (laughs) Party afterwards at the Savoy is much more fun. Here we go again. Another harsh criticism of
1: John Williams. I can't believe it. I didn't think there was a human alive who would agree with what Kirk Honeycutt said in his Hollywood Reporter (laughs) review, where he described it as clanging and banging But it looks like Alan Rickman and he must have had tea sometime because, oh, my God. Oh, my word.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I will say that I feel like the soundtracks were softened over time. I don't think you get as much of the bombastic score in later movies as you got in
1: this
2: initial movie. Yeah.
3: Yeah. What's tough about this, though, is... This is the introduction. Philosopher's Stone is the introduction to this world, and I think you need something similar to what John Williams put together. You know, like there's moments of it when I'm listening to, like I was watching Sorcerer's Stone last night and you hear the music. It's like there are like Home Alone vibes in there too, uh, Mm. where you. uh, Oh yeah, but it's. I don't think it's a hideous score by any means. Like it's become this iconic score to all of us. Like you walk into the park at, you know, the Wizarding World in Orlando, and you hear this music playing, and it like it sends chills through you. I think for most people. Um, But again, it's interesting to get that perspective of of somebody who is a much more adult actor, Eric. To your point from earlier, who's looking at this through a completely different lens um, than. I think we've all looked at it for for you know, as long as we've been doing this podcast.
0: Okay, so moving along here, after the release of the Chamber of Secrets film, he wrote talking to agent Paul Lyon Maris about Harry Potter exit, which he thinks will happen. But here we are in the project collision area again, reiterating no more Harry Potter. They don't want to hear it. Whoa. So Alan wanted out after filming movie Two. Potentially earlier, maybe even before filming yeah.
3: Chamber of Secrets. Here's my question, though. Why did he want in in the first place? <laughs> it, it, reading a lot of this, like that's that, that's what I'm curious about.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm also wondering, he wrote, they don't want to hear it. Does he mean his agents don't want to hear it? Does he mean Warner Brothers doesn't want to hear it? I would think his agents don't want to hear it because they see a big paycheck for both Alan and the agents, you know? So, I mean, the agents might be saying, yo, you're crazy. I mean, look at Harry Potter's big. Warner Brothers is offering you a lot of money. Yeah, But yeah, I guess if you tie this into the earlier diary entries, he just doesn't like this style of filming where it's, like I said... very much a studio film it's all about moving to the next shot not discussing the film the scenes with the director just rushing through it all
1: he's an artist he needs to make art it needs to mean something other than greenbacks yeah and good for him that he wants to be that type of actor
3: and and at this point he probably doesn't know that this is going to go seven more films right like that's that's something else to think about
2: right well because when the films first came out They only contracted movies one through three, right? So at this point, they probably didn't know if Goblet of Fire was going to happen.
0: There's more of this, so we'll get to it a little later. Uh, While filming Prisoner of Azkaban, he writes of Dan Radcliffe, he's so concentrated now, serious and focused, but with a sense of fun. I still don't think he's really an actor, but he will undoubtedly direct slash produce. And he has such quiet, dignified support from his parents, nothing is pushed.
1: that's nice i think that reads as admiration to me even though he's like this kid's yeah Yeah." even though he doesn't think he's an actor dan was probably (laughs) what 15 or so at the time um yeah
2: yeah well and i think we can see some of this reflected in the fact that dan is very particular about the kinds of projects that he'll take on now he only does things that feel meaningful to him He's not gone on to have a huge Hollywood career, right? He could have done that. I think the door was open for that, but he made the choice mm. not to. So I, I agree with Eric's take here. I think this is admiration.
1: I think that it grows though. It does develop. Like he, This is not his last mm. yes. diary entry about Dan. And for that, no. I love uh, seeing just the progression, even from just the excerpts we have.
0: He wrote while filming Prisoner of Azkaban, also uh, 7 a.m. pickup, Snape Lupin classroom. So I guess this is the Bogart scene. The day got off to a fabulous start with the screen guillotining onto my head, a sudden swift blackout followed by day-long melancholy. Alfonso was quietly ballistic with me. I love him too much to let it last too long, so I wailed offset and we Whoa. sorted it out. He's under the usual Harry Potter pressure and even he starts rehearsing cameras before actors and these kids need directing. They don't know their lines, and Emma's diction is this side of Albania at times. Plus, my so called rehearsal is with a stand in who is French. So <laughs> pretty harsh criticism of the child, Emma Watson. Her diction is the side of Albania. What I don't what know does what that, that mean?
2: means. Me
0: neither. It's somebody I read thought it was like an Albanian accent, um, maybe. But I, yeah. I that can't be right. Like, I think he just
3: means it's out there. It's interesting that he chose Albania, though, of all places. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe yeah. he knows. Does he Maybe just you know, mean it's, it's out there? It's a Potter reference it's... inside a diary. Uh, yeah. I
0: here.
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think I
1: think rather than focus on, you know, criticism of Emma in particular, I think you can generalize here and say, like, you know, these kids need directing. Yes, that's right. They're still children, you know, and like I I more yeah. take this excerpt to talk about sort of the insight into Alfonso Cuarón's like pressure that every director and this is a through line in all of these excerpts too, every director who's been tasked with a harry potter film has had just a tremendous amount of pressure to get things right and i think that the through line to be read here we will read more into it is that the art and and making something that means something is sacrificed in rickman's opinion mm-hmm.
3: it it also maybe gives us some better insight into why directors didn't last as long
1: Mm, yes, you know, maybe mm-hmm.
3: it's tough. You know, Yates obviously lasted the longest of any of them and but continues. Maybe he was more more willing to, you know, kind of toe that line um, that the other directors were not.
1: And uh, if you think about Alan Rickman wanting to quit Harry Potter after filming movie two, this, the beginning of this entry where it says, uh, I love Alfonso too much to let anger last too long at him is like really exciting because. Uh, you can see Alan really gravitating towards Alfonso's more artistic approach and more auteur approach to filmmaking so Alfonso won him over Mm
3: -hmm. yeah well he says as much
2: Yeah.
0: well he also I'm sure Alan has a lot of respect for his body of work thus far that's probably like a huge factor here I think
2: well I think Alfonso also won the kids over right I mean I remember at this time seeing interviews and the kids were all gushing yeah About him. I remember seeing behind the scenes footage of him interacting with the kid actors and everyone's faces were lit up like people were really engaged with the work they were doing. So I think Alfonso was maybe able to pursue more of that artistic approach that someone like Alan would have been looking for. Yep. Um, But I also remember reading an interview with Alfonso after Prisoner of Azkaban came out and it was announced that he would not be returning for any future Harry Potter films. And he referred to it like being on a really long car ride where you have to pee really bad.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's why he killed all those birds.
2: (laughs) Yep.
0: After the Prisoner of Azkaban premiere, he said arriving at Radio City was like being a beetle. Thousands of fans screaming as we got out of cars, mostly for Dan Radcliffe, but a rush for everyone, not to mention walking out onto the stage to 6,000 people. Alfonso has done an extraordinary job. It is a very grown-up movie, so full of daring that it made me smile and smile. Every frame of it is the work of an artist and storyteller. Stunning effects that are somehow part of the life of the film, not show off stunts. So he was very happy with this movie. Wow. Same can't be said for Goblet of Fire, though. He wrote, (laughs) (laughs) I feel so shafted on this film with all Mike's, Mike being the director, Mike Newell, Mike's best motives. He's under pressure like Alfonso and everything is about the shot. We only talk about the scene on about take four. Wow. So I can't just I just can't imagine them walking onto the set and immediately just doing their lines. No discussion about the scene until multiple takes have already been done. I can see why that would frustrate a legendary actor like Alan Rickman who wants to discuss the shot and know the character's motives, the thoughts and feelings of the character and other characters at the time. It's important
1: for an actor like him. This is inspiring me to like take a deeper look into maybe even doing either an episode or just writing or reading some writing about the sacrifices made to produce the Harry Potter movies. Because there is sort of a a shallowness to the Harry Potter films overall that I think we all agree like, we can spot as people who love the books so much you're being shown the scenes they don't really have a chance to percolate what happens on screen happens mm-hmm. but it's very functional it's very you know direct so a lot of what rickman is cluing on to here this lack of general overall care being taken to feel the scenes means that you can't feel them you can't feel anything as a, as an audience member watching them either So there's definitely something here as far as the sacrifices made to make such a worldwide blockbuster and what the Harry Potter films could have been like if this were not the case, if they were more independently produced or somehow if the pressure wasn't on, um, you know, what, how these movies, even with the same exact crew would have been different or might've been different.
3: Be interesting to know specifically what he feels shafted about with Goblet of Fire, because of all the movies I'm just trying to think off the top of my head Goblet of Fire probably has the least screen time for Snape as a character. Yeah. I'm um, not remembering the lore I know it's probably You said it's your favorite book, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to remember Not
2: movie.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to remember kind of the key moments for Snape in Goblet of Fire but uh, Maybe that had something to do with it. It's
1: just it's not. He a... thwaps him upside the head with the Daily Prophet. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
2: Yeah, it's almost more. He's like comic relief in Goblet of Fire. Maybe that's what movie. he didn't like. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, there there are some you know really important moments, usually that involves Snape and Moody from Goblet, Goblet of Fire that we don't get to see on screen in the film, and I think would have been you know, a huge uh, representation for Snape at this stage in the series. I think we only, the only inkling of Snape's background that we get in the film is him talking to Karkaroff outside of the Yule Ball. But it's it's like a blink and you'll miss it moment. So we really don't get to spend a lot of time with Snape in this movie
3: and it's a deleted scene i think too isn't it
2: oh yeah i think you're right it's not even in the the theatrical there, cut. there's an
3: interaction between the two of them i think with the dark mark but the the outside the scene in goblet of fire is i'm pretty sure that's a deleted scene where he like yeah. he also catches like yeah kids making out in the carriage and oh
2: yeah uh, oh, i think yeah. you're right
0: all right, let's keep going here. So, before filming Order of the Phoenix while he started ba- battling cancer, he wrote Finally Yes to Harry Potter 5. The sensation is neither up nor down. The argument that wins is the one that says see it through, it's your story. I thought that was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you filmed 4 movies already. You're halfway through. Uh at the time it seems like you were more than halfway through because at this time he probably didn't know <laughs> book 7 would be split into uh two. But yeah, I th- it's hearing him, knowing that he actually didn't want to be involved with Harry Potter the whole time, makes me think it is a freaking miracle that they got everybody yeah. on board for the entire mm-hmm. franchise. Because he is surely not the only. Now the kids were probably happy to do this because this was kickstarting their careers as actors. But the adult actors, Maggie Smith, you know, Warwick Davis, these other legendary actors. I bet they had similar thoughts at times. So it's a miracle that Warner Brothers was able to throw enough money at them to
2: keep them happy and on board. Didn't Emma Watson feel the same around this stage? Didn't we learn that she was considering? Well, some of the kids, some of the kids, especially
1: by right, right before movie five, like right around this era, really thought about whether the films were more of a hindrance uh, to either leading a normal life. Or even uh, yeah. to their stardom. They didn't want to be typecast, that kind of a thing.
0: Right, right. But their agents talked some sense into them. Maybe maybe their friends and family as well. Or maybe the, the, the fellow cast and crew members you know, gave them some really powerful talks that convinced them to stick around. So while filming Order of the Phoenix, he said, I realized as soon as that Snape's ring and costume go on, something happens. It becomes alien to be chatty, smiley, open. The character narrows me down, tightens me up. Not good qualities on a film set. I have never been less communicative with a crew. Fortunately, Dan Radcliffe fills that role with ease and charm and youth. So that's interesting. Like the the role of Snape is kind of consuming Alan.
2: Yeah, it also feels like at this stage, he's just kind of accepted the reality of what filming these movies is like, and maybe he's given up. On trying to push back on the direction. And so that snape snapeness is like kind of consuming him in that space.
0: Here's a fun one. Deathly Hallows book release day, July 20th. Alan Rickman actually went to a midnight book release in England. <laughs> it was the Waterstones in Tunbridge Wells. And he wrote at 11.15pm, or I guess that's when he arrived. I had guessed 20 or 30 people waiting for midnight. There was actually probably 300 to 400 and a queue moving slowly. One hour in the queue and it was time for action.
3: <laughs> he goes up to the security man. He says, have you read the books? Security man says, no. To which he then says, have you seen the films? The security man says, one of them. And Alan Rickman responds, I'm in them. <laughs> <laughs> and then he thinks to himself, I guess, oh yes, there'll be mayhem if I go into the queue. And then the security guard says, I'll get the manager. The manager shows up and says, oh, hello. (laughs) So obviously manager recognizes Snape. I
0: simply love that Alan. Yeah, I love that he wanted to go to a midnight release and thought there'd only be 30 or 20 to 30
1: people in line. Come on, man. And then he's like, I'm going to pull my weight here and get the book. Like He cut the line. Basically, yeah, essentially, as he should he, be able to. Yeah,
3: he just yeah. though in a previous entry talks about how arriving at Radio City was like being a beetle. Yeah, and then only <laughs> expects twenty or thirty people at the bookstore for, for the, the release of the yeah. Hallows, The yeah. last well, that's book.
1: America versus England. I'm just, I was no, shocked. No. This was not where I thought this this diary entry was going. Uh, because he shows up at a Waterstones in London on Deathly Hallows release day. And that's where some of us were. And I was like, oh my God, was he in the same shop? But it was a different Waterstones.
0: I know, I did Google it. I was like, I Googled Waterstones, Tunbridge well, and it's like Southeast okay. of London. Okay. So it's not to, the same But to same think one. that
1: Alan Rickman would have been right downstairs while the uh, other yeah. snake was upstairs with Hagrid and us. Or could uh. you
0: imagine? He was like, Harry Potter podcast happening within the store. Big mistake coming here. They're <laughs> destroying the light fixtures.
1: Everybody's on little blue pillows.
2: Can you imagine how pissed we would be if we had found this out? What? Yeah, if, if you didn't. we oh, oh, if oh. we had been there all those years ago and never had any idea that he was there and then now found that out, I would be so mad. I,
0: I thought you were going to be like, "Could you imagine how pissed we'd be if we found out Alan Rickman was upstaging us?" No, not at all. <laughs> I'd be pissed that I didn't know he was there. Yeah,
1: I would have wanted to meet him
0: after reading the book, which was a week after its release release. He wrote, I have finished reading the last Harry Potter book. Snape dies heroically. Potter describes him to his children as one of the bravest men he ever knew and calls his son, Albus Severus. This was a genuine rite of passage. One small piece of information from Joe Rowling seven years ago. Snape loved Lily, gave me a cliff edge to hang on to. Yeah. Wow. So that really drove him to be a part of this. It sounds like for as many films for all these films while filming half-blood prince in 2008 he said the line take out your wand reduces helena bonham carter to helpless mirth and will be a (laughs) bit of a waterloo come thursday helen mccrory says she's terrified but fits like a glove with the mayhem that's fun. End of 2008. Take out your <laughs> wand. <laughs> he just giggle uncontrollably. End of 2008. He writes lunch with Dan Radcliffe at Cafe Clooney. One minute. He was 12. Now he's 19. W- when did that happen? And he's sensitive, articulate and smart and owns a three bed apartment in New York. <laughs> Wow. July 2009, somewhere in here, finally, the deal is done for Harry Potter 7 parts 1 and 2, and people are all carefully left in possession of genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> to code this one for well, me. Good to know he didn't have to rip any
1: dicks <laughs> off people to get his the deal yeah, he wanted.
0: Yeah, this sounds wow. like the studio was threatening or the agents were threatening him. Something <laughs> to convince him. Somebody was trying to convince him to be a part of these final two movies, it sounds like. After the Half-Blood Prince New York premiere, he wrote, The desire to eat and even more get a drink is matched only by the need to bang the three Davids' heads. The three Davids being producer David Heyman, David Barron, and director David Yates. Against the nearest wall. I get the character development and the spiffing effects dazzling. But where's the story? Poor question marks. Not happy. Not happy. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's... Especially his movie to have to have to have the Snape actor ask, where is the story of Half-Bud Prince the movie? That's that's big. That's pretty important and pretty damning. And we also have to keep in mind, this guy is a fan
0: of the books. He attends the midnight Mm -hmm. releases like he wants that story that he fell in love with from the books. So I guess I understand this. He sounds like any other fan complaining about how the movies adapted the books. Okay, so now let's get to filming Harry Potter 7. November 25th, he wrote, uh, Cold, wet, droughty, but the crew seems miles away, so Ralph and I can just get on with inching our ways towards the scene. David Yates, stubborn as ever, about V killing me with a spell. Impossible to comprehend, not least the resultant wrath of the readers. Great working with Ralph, though. Direct and true and inventive and free. Rafe. Back home, sorry, with Rafe, the... Back home, and Rima—that's his wife—says uh, he can't kill you with a spell. The only one that would do that is Avada Kedavra, and it kills instantly. You wouldn't be able to finish finish the scene. Mm-hmm.
1: This is huge. So they didn't want to make people. They didn't want to make Nagini kill Snape in the movie originally, um, is what I'm gathering from this. Oh, that they wanted yeah. to make him. I Whoa. think
2: I liken this to the fact that we were going through the 3D hype at the time. The deaths in Deathly Hallows Part Two are so bad because of this, because think about Bellatrix, think about Voldemort's death moment. They were designed specifically for 3D viewing. And when you watch these movies, not in 3D, those effects look really bizarre and they don't land very well. Um, Also, I just shout out to Alan Rickman for being like, the fans are going to be pissed if you do this. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah he's a real one yeah well his wife had a great point yeah that uh he wouldn't be able to finish the scene and still have anything to do with harry if he were hit by like the killing curse it is awesome they knew the books that well
0: yeah Filming Harry Potter 7 again, November 26th. Uh, The death of Snape. Nearly 10 years later, at least it's just down to two actors. David is vulnerable and endearing when he's excited, and he is by this scene. It's the absolute example of what can happen when a couple of actors pick up a scene off the page and work with the story. The space and each other. Stuart Craig's boathouse set gave it something ironic and everlasting. As I said at one point to David, it's all a bit epic in Japanese. There you go. Mm-hmm. You get his
1: investment now that he sees it's a little bit arty. Yeah. Um, Did he mean ironic or iconic? I'm wondering if Google Docs like
0: auto-corrected or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, it does
0: seem like maybe it, it should be iconic.
1: What I'm picturing as far as he means like Japanese is that oriental style of like the fact that you don't see snake like the blood spatter. It's like if somebody brings down a long sword and then you don't actually see the cut being made, but it flashes to the wall and then the those spatters, like very arty style of telling the story. And that's very much what Snape's death evokes now that, now that he mentions it. And I'm glad he got the
0: time here to be creative. Yeah. Absolute example of what can happen when a couple of actors pick up a scene off the page and work with the story, the space, and each other. That's what he's wanted all this time. Yeah. Okay, but he's not done filming yet because he has to film the uh, Snape memories with Michael Gambon. And we get some interesting insight here. Uh, this was in January, filming Harry Potter 8 at this point. After a night of not sleeping at all, scene 305, or the last breath of Severus Snape, here I am with Dan, Emma. Actually, these weren't the Snape's memory scenes yet. Here I am with Dan, Emma, and Rupert, 10 years on. Emma is here on a break from Brown University. Blood all over my throat from an imagined Nagini. The three of them still furrowed brows and panting a bit. Finding it hard to remember any particular scenes over the years, mainly because all the decisions are taken in committee rooms and not on the floor. We listen as David Yates tells us what we are thinking and why. And in some cases recounts the story and a small piece of something creative caves in. So back to it being a studio film. OK, now Snape's worst memory scenes with Michael Gambin. These happened in March to Harry Potter to rehearse with Michael Gambon. On the way back to the trailer, Michael talks of his fear of learning slash forgetting his lines. And then he tells me he's doing crap's last tape. What's wrong with this picture? So I assume that production has a lot of lines for <sighs> Michael Gambon to memorize.
1: I looked this I looked this up. It's actually a one-man, one-act show. Oh, yeah. Oh. So it's not like you have any scene partners to remind you of your lines or to work off of. Literally, Michael Gambon is doing a one man, one act like play, having to remember this entire thing, which, of course, he's doing. But why take that upon yourself if you're somebody who has a fear of learning or forgetting your lines?
0: Well, and it's really bad because the next diary entry, just me and Michael Gambon all day. He's vulnerable after his illness and yesterday's primer was no joke for him. The lines are a real problem for him. Technology helps and why not? It's never great when it's just a memory loss, no relaxation, no freedom, no contact. I'd have boards and auto cue everywhere. And anyway, when he unleashes a bit of magnificence, it's effortless and spellbinding. So it sounds like Michael Gammon, maybe he had an earpiece, maybe he had cue cards off stage and um, he needed help getting through all those lines. It sounds like something was going on. He had some sort of mental illness at the time and maybe still does. I mean, he's still around. It's so rough. Yeah, it is rough. But I love this line when he unleashes a bit of magnific magnificence. It's effortless and spellbinding. I have said it before. I'll say it again. I love Michael Gambon, especially in these later movies. He really is an excellent Dumbledore, in my opinion. So I'm glad that him needing to be fed his lines didn't affect his performance. Still was a great actor, even if he couldn't remember his lines. And then finally, this is a fun one. After the Deathly Hallows part two premiere, red carpets everywhere, a screen, a platform, an interviewer and thousands screaming and singing, Snape, Snape, Severus Snape, which he doesn't probably (laughs) realize that's a Potter puppet. (laughs) 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 Carpet snakes into Leicester square for the film at 8 PM. I found the film unsettling to watch. It has to change horses midstream to tell the Snape story and the camera loses concentration, audience however very happy
1: (laughs) (laughs) i love the dichotomy of like well this is kind of uncomfortable for me but the audience is very happy yeah yeah
0: so those are the ones that have been published thus far i'm sure there's some other harry potter stuff in the diaries any of you gonna pick this up
2: i probably will yeah Uh, i
1: think so yeah well, I want to hear his thoughts on uh, some other films he did. Uh, Dogma, Galaxy Quest, uh, yeah, Die yeah, Hard. The... I really yeah. want to incredible career. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully he wrote uh, all about working with uh, Bruce Willis or Kevin Smith or any of that.
0: Yeah. So, again, October 18th is when this is going to be published. I'll probably flip through it at the bookstore, see if I can find any other stuff that interests me. But, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. All right. Well, that's Bonus MuggleCast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for your support. Thank you to all the actors for sticking through all eight Harry Potter movies, unless you were fired. Seriously. And we'll see you next time. Bye. If you want more bonus MuggleCast installments, and we'll be releasing two each month beginning in 2023, visit Patreon.com/MuggleCast. Again, that's Patreon.com/MuggleCast. We couldn't do this show without support from listeners like you, so thank you in advance.